This is episode 25 of the Next Year Now podcast. Hi, I'm AJ Wilcox, entrepreneur and LinkedIn ads advertising expert. If you're looking to step up your game and reach the next level with advertising in your business or with your brand, then you need to start listening to the Next Year Now podcast with my friend, Tom Hefner. And so systems and processes, if you want to be a business owner that's not enslaved to the business, if you want to be a business owner that's not constantly living in chaos, then you've got to be a business owner that buys into the vision, the mission values, and lives it out through systems and process and repetitive training over and over and over again. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business and entrepreneurship. In today's interview, we're going to explore how small business owners can get their lives and business back on track by learning to work on their business instead of in their business. And to do that, we'll be speaking with Scott Beebe, an expert in business coaching and helping others to define and articulate their business vision, mission, and values. In our conversation, Scott and I will be discussing the power of exploiting a niche for your business, the three things almost all business owners overlook but are key to your success, the non-negotiables of any small business, pay attention to this one, book recommendations to challenge your conventional wisdom, books to optimize your day-to-day business, and so much more. If you run a small business and need help coaching, optimizing, and growing your business, then I'm telling you right now that Scott Beebe is your go-to resource. He's the founder and head coach of MyBusinessOnPurpose.com and the host of the wildly successful Business on Purpose podcast. He liberates small business owners from the chaos of working in their business. And as somebody who has a consulting and podcast business, that is a real thing and helps to get their lives back by articulating and implementing intentional vision, mission, values, systems, and processes. To do this, Scott created Four Steps to Business Freedom. That's a six-month group coaching experience exclusively built for small business owners. The program guides business owners through building the systems and processes they need to get their businesses and lives back on track. Scott also personally serves as a virtual operations coach for Dan Miller and his organization at 48 Days. Finally, he also helps out with View from the Top organization with Aaron Walker, who we've had on the show before, and businesses in Nigeria. Scott, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the show, my friend. Tom, man, I am so delighted to be here. Powerful what you built, so thanks for having me. Uh, Awesome. This is going to be a great conversation. Scott, one of the things I've read and been taught in both business and podcasting is the importance of niching yourself, you know, like avoiding the big crowds, taking the road less traveled, so to speak, you know, metaphorically, you learn firsthand about the value of exploiting a niche market uh, while at the University of South Carolina, where you first used niching to become a long snapper for the football team. 
So first off, let me just say that's amazing. Most of the time, the long snappers, as somebody who's watched football all my life and played a little bit of it when I was in high school, the long snappers are not actually that big, but yet they're squaring off against defensive tackles that are 300 plus pounds and that outweigh them by 50, 60, sometimes 75 pounds. Mm. So talk, if you would, about the experience of playing Division One football and competing against guys that were often, you know, bigger, stronger and faster than you. Tom, the first max day that we had in the weight room, this was my, it was my red shirt freshman year. So I was, a, I was, I was coming at the end of my true freshman year mm. and it was max day, which meant, you know, all, all the players were in the weight room. Everybody was kind of, <laughs> you know, challenging its brute day in the weight room. And so, I mean, you've got guys, honestly, they're benching three, 400, 450 pounds. Whew. They're squatting six to seven to some, in some cases, 800 pounds. I mean, it's just it's 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 it it it's honestly mind blowing, and so I walk in. I'm 196 pounds, something like that. I played one year of high school football. I wasn't even that good. I literally, and this is no lie, it's not for effect. I had to lobby the coach for a letter during my senior year uh, in high school because it was the only year I played football, and I didn't play that much because I'm just not naturally very athletic. But I did start to learn how to snap a football in my senior year of, of high school, even though I didn't play. I <laughs> uh, didn't even learn how to do it very well. And I found out when I was in college, my roommate was a manager for the football team, came home one day and said, hey, they've only got one uh, deep snapper on the team that they dress out. Most D1 schools, especially SEC schools, carry two, but nobody's willing to learn. And I was like, well, I mean, let's dust this thing off. So bring <laughs> home some balls. So he brought, he'd bring home some balls. And literally in the dorm hallway, which was a uh, concrete Haydite block, in the dorms, Bates West at the University of South Carolina. It's about 16 yards was the hallway length. Well, you only need 15 yards for a long snap. So we, me, me and Wade would sit in or stand in the uh, hallway, and every night, I, God only knows why Wade would do this with me. I, I, I don't. <laughs> he I clearly didn't care much about his schoolwork, and so he'd stand at one end of the hallway, and I'd snap to him every single night until my arms burned, and uh, and so I ended up making the team. Long story short, ended up. Uh, dressing out and traveling my first year, ended up starting about five games in in uh, in the town of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a small little school called Louisiana State University, about oh, 8,000 wow. people pouring down rain. And uh, we ended up winning that game, not because of me, but I did play. Uh, it's my, this is the first time, Tom, I'd ever held or snapped a football in a live football game was in Baton Rouge in front of 82,000 people. What was that experience like? I, it, it was, um, well, it was it was compounded by the fact that my parents are both LSU alums <laughs> and my entire family from Louisiana was there. And my dad even told me afterwards, like, now I told him before the game, like, you know, Scott's on the team, but he doesn't play. <laughs> well, the first string deep snapper went out with a uh, separated shoulder. And when he was running off the field, by the way, any coaches that are listening, athletic coaches, business coaches, whatever, if you're listening, don't ever do what I'm about to tell you uh, <laughs> is what happened. So Derek was running off the field, shoulder separated. And our position coach, I'm not going to tell you his name because, again, I don't want you to emulate what he said. But our position coach runs towards me screams at me you better not f this up and i'm like <laughs> oh my like do you real like at that moment i wanted to have a logical reasonable conversation with the position coach which clearly didn't happen 
But I wanted to basically say, you realize I've never snapped a football game or a football in a live game before. Anyway, the return man was a guy named Eddie Kinnison who went on to play about 12. Yeah, I remember Eddie. Well, um, we had guys, as you mentioned, across from me. Uh, Leonard Little for the University of Tennessee used to stand across from me. Al Wilson, who was a linebacker for the Denver Broncos. Oh, there was a guy from Clemson, Trevor uh, Price. Yeah, Trevor Price. Broncos. I remember Broncos. And, yep. uh, Trevor was about a good 290, 300. And uh, this will kind of tell you, yes, what it's like. This is what it's like. Uh, and again, I, I'll, I'll keep this very family friendly. Uh, <laughs> but you would get down over the ball and inevitably – the 280 to 310 pound guys across the ball from you decided they wanted to have a conversation about your mother. That was very inappropriate. <laughs> and so one day I decided at the end of a game, my parents were always kind enough to stand outside of the locker room, and wait for us to come out. And, and one, one, after one particular game, I came out, mom was like, Hey, how you, you know, how did it go? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I said, mom, by the way, I, I forgot to tell you this, but a couple of the guys asked about you and she was like, <laughs> what? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember it was this play and I got down over the ball and a couple of guys were asking, well, well what did they ask? <laughs> I said, well, mom, I don't know that I can necessarily tell you what my dad's dying <laughs> at this point. My mom's so just sweet and sincere. And she's like, well, you know, and then every game from then on out, I'd walk out. Mom would, with a grin go, did, did anybody ask about me <laughs> at, at the game? And so, I mean, you can only imagine they are just trying to get in your head, uh, and, my first two years, they didn't have this rule in place. Now they do. It's called the one second rule for the deep snappers. And so you have to allow one second after the snap for them to get their head up because our heads are down. Yeah. Well, it used to not be that way. And so we were essentially a sitting golf ball on a tee oh. uh, after we would snap the ball. And those guys would just light us up. And uh, it was even worse on the point after attempts and the field goals because you're right there in the trench. Uh, but man, what, what a, um, compelling time just for some rapid heartbeats uh, to really enjoy some things that quite honestly, Tom, I wasn't very skilled at, uh, but I found the niche. I exploited the niche and quite honestly, it was the first and biggest sales job that I ever had in my life was to sell our coach, Brad Scott, on the fact that I would be a good fit on the team. Yeah, well, talk about that a little bit more. Uh, I mean, in terms of like, what did you learn from that niche exploitation? Uh, and then if you want, you know, even talking about just the, the general football experience from that time that you bring to bear in your business. So in, in the niching part of it, um, you know, we, we've heard the phrase, there's riches in the niches and, and all that. And, and it's true. There's absolute great truth in that. In fact, what we found is most people are way too broad in their offerings. And so it's kind of like that uh, natural Chinese restaurant down the street where you walk in and you look and they've got, you know, Kung Pao chicken and General Sal's chicken, but they also have hamburgers and uh, hot dogs and shrimp and steak and pasta and pizza. And you're like, wait a second. I thought it was at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and what it does is it really confuses us. And it also tells me, you know what? Not only is their hamburger probably not very good because they're not a hamburger place, most likely nothing's very good here because they're trying to be all things to all people. And there's really only one place that I found that to work. And that's when Paul said it in the new Testament of the Bible, I become all things to all men mm -hmm. uh, so that by all means, some might be saved, but in restaurants and in businesses, it's not a very good strategy. And so niching down, if I would have tried to go, Hey coach, I want to, I want to be a deep snapper, but I also want to be a quarterback and a wide receiver and a linebacker. He would have never given me the time of day. But because I came in and just said, hey, all I want to do is snap, and I want to be great at snapping the ball, throwing the ball upside down 15 yards backwards, I want to be the best on the team at that, 
Now he gave me the time of day. It was very clear what I was asking, and I could go all in on that one thing. So the niching down, I think, was crucial. But also, Tom, the clarity of my mind to go, hey, this is all I have to concern myself with. There's football's such a complicated game. Uh, there's so much game planning that has to take place. At some point, you've got to be able to kind of niche down just for your own mental clarity. And it's what Seth Godin calls emotional labor. And we've only got uh, a tank full of emotional labor. It's not it's an exhaustible resource. And so we've got to make sure that we're expending that emotional energy on narrow things. We call it your narrow brilliance. It's that one thing that you're really good at, Tom, that I'm not. And so I want to look at that and go, okay, you know what? That's Tom's space. So I want I want to encourage him to play in that space, and I want him to encourage me to play in this space. And so niching is crucial. But the other thing I learned, Tom, was the ability to really sell yourself. Was I the best deep snapper uh, in the state on the team? No, I wasn't. But I had to sell myself to let them know that my capacity, my ability to outwork was much better than any other option that they had at that moment. And, and thinking back to that experience, like what were some of the things you did to sell yourself uh, to the coach? The first thing that I did is I went to where he was. So my dad and I heard that he was speaking in a local you know, booster event and we ended up going. And I was there. I walked up to him afterwards, shook his hand and told him my name. And I said, hey, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be one of your next long snappers. And so I went ahead and kind of planted that seed in his head in an event that totally threw him off. Because I <laughs> guarantee you, when he saw me walking up, football player did not pop in his mind. It was probably like, oh, wow, water boy, we could use you. you know. And instead, to have this guy kind of throw him off. So I would almost think that to some level of kind of throwing a curveball to make him stop and think was absolutely one of the elements. But the other element was just being there and showing up and outworking and being everywhere that I could possibly be. I mean, I was a deep snapper who would go into the film room. The film room, Tom. Why in the heck <laughs> does a deep snapper need to go in the film room? But I would go in there and I would try to find nuances and and patterns and different things. And actually, one of the greatest stories of the film room was a, was used against me. Uh, and this really taught me the power of studying your opponent. Uh, Steve Spurrier was the head coach at the University of Florida at the time. We were playing them. We lost to them all four years, just like we lost to the University of Tennessee because they had a, a guy who played a little bit in the NFL named Peyton Manning. <laughs> and so we lost to them all four years. But one particular year, Florida blocked two of our punts. And Coach Scott, our coach, actually called Spurrier after the game later that week and said, hey, I just got to know. What did you see? Spurrier said, we watched film and we saw your deep snapper. He had a hitch before he actually released the ball. And so we coached our players all week to look for the hitch. And as soon as the hitch happened, that's when they took off. So they mm. beat all your down guys so they could get back to the ball and they could block the ball. And I thought, oh, my gosh. Number one, Steve Spurrier knows who I am. That was pretty cool. <laughs> but the second thing uh, it was for all the wrong reasons. The second thing is it taught me I need to be studying the people that I'm coming up against. Well, and I think another piece of that, too, right, is uh, what I'm hearing from the story is the idea of just, uh, you know, and selling yourself is uh, is having a little bit of ambition. You know, sometimes I think uh, maybe we're taught to be, you know, a little modest or humble. But like you just showed up to the event and said, I'm going to do this and put it out there and put that that uh, planted that seed. That's right. That's right. And it, I mean, it's, you know, when you're, when you're 18, maybe you've got a little bit more swagger to do that. When you're 42, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of times we've got to back that swagger up with actual technical skill or soft skill or whatever. Right. But, but even, even then, 
uh, the thing I'm, I'm learning right now, Tom, is that words are free to embrace but expensive to express. They're free to embrace, but they're expensive to express. If it comes out of your mouth, you better back it up. And that's where it gets really expensive. Well, look, Scott's business is is laser focused on coaching small business owners to optimize their, their business and helping them get their lives back. And one of the ways he and his team do this is by working with them to become very intentional and clear about three things that we often overlook. And that's vision, mission, and values. Scott, talk if you would about the importance of vision, mission, and values and why small business owners often overlook these key elements. This usually, Tom, triggers an eye roll. Yeah, Scott, yeah, we've, we've heard it. We've got the vision binder. It's collecting dust over in the corner of the room. You know, we've got the mission statement. It's on a sign. Nobody knows it. We've got our 15 core values. Nobody knows those either. And so we kind of do a collective eye roll. And what we've done is we've really tried to suspend that eye roll, recapture the reality and the power of this idea of vision, mission, value. So let me lay it out, um, not necessarily with my own story, but let, let me lay it out with the reality of history. And we've got antiquity to kind of look back towards and to think about as it relates to vision. And here's why. If you're roaming the earth right now and you've got any faith conviction at all about God creating the earth, you are a breathing testament to the power of vision. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go back to the ancient literature, it literally tells us that the earth was formless and void. Now, I realize I may be losing a lot of, of kind of evolutionists or Big Bang theorists or whatever. That's okay, but just please hang with me. Mm -hmm. And just even if you look at this as mythology, that's okay. Just hang with me. And so in the text, it tells us that the earth was formless and void. So if the earth was formless and void, and all of a sudden what I'm sitting in, sitting in right now and, and looking at right now is not formless and void. There's actually great shape to it. In fact, there are people all around us that are literally shaping it right now with pieces of equipment and all of that. Then I've got to assume that vision played a part to take something that was formless and void and turn it into something that was very formed and quite beautiful, actually that vision had to play a part because how else are you going to take formlessness and turn it into form without a vision in place? So vision is not new. It's not Peter Drucker. It's not Jim Collins. It's not Harvard Business. Vision is ancient. It's been with us literally since the foundation of time that we've had vision. And then when humans came on the earth, we started to take raw materials and turn those into resources that we can use. So we took raw materials out of mountains, we turned them into tractors. We took raw materials out of beaches, we turned them into computers. And so we take all these raw materials, we manufacture those raw materials into things that we can have great utility out of, like microphones, computers, and cars, and buildings, and all of those sorts of things. And now it serves value to all the people around us. That doesn't happen without vision. And so there's a great proverb that says, where there is no vision, people scatter. And it's true. And so all of us right now can think about something in our life that feels scattered. And if I were to ask you, do you have a clear and articulated vision for that something? The answer would likely to be no, because where there is no vision, people scatter. And so where you've got that, what we call a vision story in place. Now, Tom, we're not talking about a vision paragraph. This isn't it. This isn't, hey, uh, you know, we're business on purpose and we want to see the world full of life, love and happiness and unicorns and jelly beans. <laughs> that's that's a, you know, kind of a vision paragraph that, you know, it feels great, but nobody really knows what it means. What we're talking about is a 
detailed vision story. We want to see a detailed snapshot of the future of your business. And so we break that down into seven categories. The term, how far out do you see your business? The family and freedom section of that. I want to know what do you want for your family and your own personal freedom as you're building a business? And that's usually time where people will go, well, Scott, I'm, I, I just want my business vision. Well, you can't separate the two. You tell me a human alive that has had something negative happen to them at work and they don't take that home or vice versa. It just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is, is all of these things are interconnected and we see that vision propels, it fuels those things. So we identify how far out our vision is, what our family and freedom looks like within that vision, what our finances look like. We actually drill down on that with great specificity, uh, what our products and services look like what our team looks like to serve those products and services, what our ideal clients look like, what some would call the avatar, and then finally what our culture looks like. Now, Tom, if you can only imagine the businesses and the business owners that you know, that if they could just have that clarified, the laser-like focus that they would have in moving forward. No, I think that's uh, that's huge. And I think back, uh, I, well, I think back to my own experience right now, right? So I, I work for uh, an organization, the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, and we put a you know, a great deal of time into our vision uh, statements, or we call them VSEs, vision, strategy, and execution. And I think back to when I was coming up with my podcast and consulting and, and, and the time that I put into that to make that something that could be, uh, you know, a guidepost uh, and it's, it's priceless. Hmm. Yeah. And so when you talk about the mission part of it, if you can go to the hills of Tennessee where they're known for crafting moonshine. Now, I've never crafted or drank moonshine, <laughs> but I've seen a couple of different elements of how it all comes about. And essentially, they take a big pot of mash and they put fire under it somehow and it drips out drip by drip by drip. And from what I've heard, one little drop of moonshine will punch a man in the face. <laughs> and so you take this big vat of mash, but all that comes out is one little drop. That's your mission statement. So you take the big vat of detail that's in your vision story, you put heat under it, and what comes out is one drop. And so our laser focus with the Business on Purpose platform is to liberate small business owners from their chaos. That's what we do every day. That's why Monday's our favorite day of the week. That's why we love Tuesdays. We love Wednesdays. We love Thursdays. We love Fridays. Saturdays and Sundays are fun too, but we're dying to get back to Monday because we live for that distillation of liberating small business owners from their chaos. We are laser focused on it. It's what we love. When people, I was just at a conference a couple of weeks ago. Hey, Scott, what do you do? We liberate small business owners from their chaos. Hey, Scott, what do you do? We liberate small business owners from their chaos. Tom, when we, when we respond in that way, it not only lets them know what our passion is, but it also forces them to ask the follow-up question, well, how do you do that? That gets us into the discussion. That buys us a seat at the table for the discussion so that we can leverage that part to really see how we can serve the person that we're talking to. And then that funnels right into what we call unique core values. So these aren't standard values like integrity, responsibility, you know, excellence. Th 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 those are great. Don't get me wrong. But they're also cliche. So if I were to ask you, hey, Tom, what are your core values? And you go, hey, integrity, responsibility. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that sounds great. And my mind would shut off because they're cliche. And that's what our mind does in the presence of cliche. But if you tell me otherwise, you know, one of our core values, and I'll give you one of ours, is work is faith. Or one of our core values is relentless learning. Well, that's different. And again, it forces a follow-up question of how. Okay, Scott, relentless learning is one of your core values. How do you do that? 
How do you live that out? What is work is faith? I don't understand that. So tell me how. It invites a deeper discussion. And quite frankly, our core values is how we make decisions. So we're going through our 12-week planning right now, but we're running each of our three major goals in our 12-week plan through our five unique core values. And that tells us whether or not they're a fit. It's like a nice filtering uh, function for you. That's right. They're the coffee filters of our decision making. <laughs> I like that, the coffee filters. Look, uh, one thing that can be a struggle at times in my business, be it uh, podcasting or when I consult or when I teach or even, you know, the organization that I work for kind of day to day is uh, systematizing and processes. You know, it seems like at times I'm, I'm, I'm constantly turning that same crank over and over again. And I know I'm not alone in that assessment. I've had conversations with coworkers or uh, with other podcasters. With that in mind, what are some of your strategies or approaches to helping businesses uh, systematize their processes, their tasks, et cetera, et cetera? So I just put my swim trunks on because this is the pool that I could swim in all day long. I'm the guy that <laughs> totally geeks out on systems and processes. Let, let me go back to a living metaphor. So we talked earlier about the vision and how something that was you know, really kind of raw in terms of a resource can come into through a manufacturing process and turn into something really powerful. And if we think about that with systems and processes, if you just look around where we live in the low country of South Carolina, we live on a tidal creek. And so at any given time, let me think about the time it is today. Right now, the tide is going out. And in about six hours, the time, the tide will be coming back in at event, you know, at a vengeance. And so our tide literally behind our house will be mud here in just a few hours, and then a few hours after that, we'll be completely full with about eight feet of water. And so oh, wow. every day, six and a half hours, you go from mud to eight feet of water, back to mud, back to eight feet of water, in and out. We've lived there for two years, and it has never wavered, ever. It's been the same every day, totally predictable. I could tell you what the tides are going to be in six months. I could tell you what they're going to be in 18 months. They are totally predictable because they're a system. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. The cloud comes in, the clouds come out. The seasons come in, the seasons go. I mean, everything we live in is a system. The trees drop their leaves, the trees grow new leaves. And so when you look around and think, okay, this world exists kind of quote on autopilot with these systems that have been created, why in the heck wouldn't my business run the same? And so when we look at our business as a collective of systems, as we look at our human body as a collective of 11 systems also, the cardiovascular, skeleton, et cetera, then we can begin to process out those systems and say, okay, I know I've got a cardiovascular system in my body, but the process of that system includes veins and arteries and the heart and pumping at this frequency, at this pressure. Those are all processes within the cardiovascular system to help support my human body. And so let's take Fred's Philly cheesesteak shop. Well, Fred's Philly cheesesteak shop takes about, let's say, three or four major systems, the administrative system, the marketing system, the production system, and the sales system. Well, then we identify what are the processes within the administration system, payables, receivables, transaction, point of sale, et cetera. And we we actually literally document or record those processes with a video camera or something. We record those processes. We train those processes with relentless fervor over and over and over again, remembering that repetition is the mother of all learning. And then what happens is those processes begin to work themselves to support the system, which ends up collectively supporting the entire body 
of the business. And so systems and processes, if you want to be a business owner that's not enslaved to the business, if you want to be a business owner that's not constantly living in chaos, then you've got to be a business owner that buys into the vision, the mission values, and lives it out through systems and process and repetitive training over and over and over again. I think we're going to have to talk after this uh, this this interview here. <laughs> I, I think I have a few uh, systems that need to be uh, systematized. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting, Tom. Whenever we kind of lay it out, we try to lay it out just so metaphorically and succinctly. I think most business owners and and product owners kind of look at their product and go, "Oh, wait, I can I can do that." Like I I haven't even thought about that. I can totally do that. And then there's a pause followed up with, but how, like, how would I do that? And so that's where we come in and really sit down and go, Hey, the biggest, it, here's the biggest challenge, Tom. It's not, we, we built out the structure. That's where you mentioned earlier, the four steps to business freedom. We've got the structure. We've got everything. It is a literally, uh, it's kind of a dummy's guide to walk through how to build this out. The biggest challenge for a small business owner is not the structure. We've got all that. The biggest challenge is showing up Monday and doing the work and then showing up on Tuesday and doing it again. And then showing up on Wednesday and doing it again, and then showing up on Thursday and doing it again. <laughs> That's the hardest part. It's the implementation. That's why my favorite phrase is from Joe Calloway. He said, vision without implementation is hallucination. And it's true. And so that's our biggest challenge as coaches is not to get to people, uh, business owners to buy into the reality that they need systems and processes. Everybody knows that. It's to get them to buy into the fact that they need to show up on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and you need to do it for a long, long time. Well, and I think one of the kind of a nice segue to my next question here, I think one of the reasons that might be a challenge is because oftentimes people find, especially more so now than uh, than ever, people find it difficult to say no. You know, they, they, they find it difficult to say to no to requests, people of their time, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you want to do something consistently again and again, you have to be able to say no. Uh, in my own case, uh, you know, that that's, a, I think, a, a challenge to say no. And because of that, uh, there are certain non-negotiables I, I've, I've defined, you know, things like I'm not going to include my work email on my, you know, my phone. People could still reach me for sure, but at least it provides a, a buffer. So uh, kind of switching to this idea uh, of, of non-negotiables in your, in your workplace, in your experience, what are some non-negotiables in running a small business? We literally have a module in our program that is called the non-negotiable weekly schedule. That's literally the title of the module the non-negotiable weekly schedule. The, 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 let me come back to that though. The first hands down non-negotiable is vision story. Where there is no vision, people scatter. The other two versions of that, by the way, are where there is no vision, people become detached. And the worst one is where there is no vision, people die. That is literally one of the versions of that mm. proverb. And so the vision story is a must-have hands down if you build your systems and build your processes but do not have a vision, you've got an automobile driving to nowhere. And so it's a good-looking automobile. It's a sweet-looking automobile. Sweet ride. Yep, but you're driving to nowhere. And so I think we know what Yogi Berra said about that. If you don't know where you're getting – if you don't know where you're going, you'll get there every time. And it's very, <laughs> very true. And so the first non-negotiable is this collective of the vision story the succinct one sentence, less than 15 words mission statement and your three to five unique core values. Because without those, you don't know where you're going. You have no idea what gets you out of bed and you don't know the filters for decision making. So it, everything's a good idea unless you just don't like it. But everything becomes a good idea at that point. 
And so that's the first set of non-negotiables. Now, within that, and, and I realize that's going to feel very theoretical and not very tactical. So let me give you some tactical things that are non-negotiables. Number one, the non-negotiable weekly schedule. You have got to have what Cal Newport calls focused blocks of time scheduled out in your calendar to say Monday at 10 o'clock is my payroll time. Come hell or high water, it's my payroll time. Well, Scott, what if I've got a vendor who requires a meeting on Monday? That's fine because we've got white space built in to your non-negotiable weekly schedule. Well, we're going to take your payroll time. We're going to move it to a white space block that week. And so you'll still have that block of time. And so Mm -hmm. the non-negotiable weekly schedule is you literally build in an hour a day for email and that's it. You're not checking email throughout the day. You're not only taking it off your phone, Tom, like you've got, which is a brilliant idea, but you're also not having it pop up and notify, please, for all that's holy, turn off the notifications. Those notifications are directly from the pit of you know where. (laughs) I hate notifications. (laughs) They're horrible. They are, as I heard somebody say about email one time, email is someone else's agenda for your day. So turn off their agenda and turn off those notifications. So the weekly schedule, the second element is you've got to have weekly team meetings. And there's a couple of rules for that. They've got to be agenda driven. They've got to be leader led and they've got to incorporate action items and accountability. So follow up. What did we talk about last week? Did you get that done? And then writing down, here's what you're committing to for next week. And then the final element of a, of a team meeting that really, really works is training. So those processes that you've built out to build that beautiful car that you've got, you've got to have an airtight place to go and train on those. The last five minutes of your team meeting are a perfect place to train on new process. Emails are somebody else's agenda for your for your day. That's going to stick with me for the rest of the – I mean, I will never forget that because we live in an email-driven culture and my organization is no different. You know, you, you don't answer the fifth email and all of a sudden somebody's calling you up. Hey, I, I emailed you. I, emailed I needed you. that. Yeah. Why, why didn't you call me? You know. Um, so thank you for that. Another challenge at times uh, for me, both in my business as well as the organization I work for, is uh, this idea of delegating work to others. And I suspect I'm not going out on a limb here when I say that many of us struggle with delegation. So two questions, right? You know, why is delegation so hard? And, and to that point, why is it so important to small business owners? This is a timely question, Tom, because this morning, uh, every week at this time, I have the privilege of being able to hang out with five ninth graders at Wendy's. We have some really distasteful biscuits in the morning and we talk about <laughs> man stuff just about every week. And so this week's topic was actually delegation. And so I brought some free weights. I still have them in the back of my truck. I brought free weights, a 35-pound weight, two 25-pound weights, uh, a couple of 10-pound weights, and a two and a half-pound weight. And I had one of the games, and I, all right, you're a football coach. And I said, you just got named the football coach of this local school. And so I had him hold his arms straight out, and I put a 25-pound weight on his hands and said, you got to keep your arms held straight out. And then I said, not only that, but you got to be in charge of fundraising. So I put a 10-pound weight on top of that, why, why his arms were still straight out. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta make sure that the fields are painted for the game. And I put a two and a half pound weight on that. And just about that time, his arms started to give out. So I started to take the weight off. That's a metaphor, a picture description of delegation. So I had one of the other guys get up and I said, Hey, do you mind taking the two and a half pound weight? And so he took that weight, had another guy stand up and say, do you mind taking that 10 pound weight of fundraising off of his plate? He took it off his plate, had another guy stand up and said, Hey, do you mind holding this side of that 25 pound weight and you can help him? coach these kids. 
and he held that weight. And all of a sudden, it was a whole lot easier to carry. Now, I'll tell you this. You ask, why is it so hard to delegate? Because, man, it just looks cool when you've got your arms out and you're holding 50 pounds by yourself, you know? <laughs> and so it, it's, it's kind of a brag thing. I don't know. People don't want to admit that. But the reality is, is it's a whole lot easier when I call you up, Tom, and say, hey, Tom, how's it going? Man, I'm busy, Scott. I'm busy. It's really busy. Oh yeah. What are you going on with, man? Just busy, busy. Okay. So like what specifically you're working on, man, just a lot of busy stuff, Scott, just really, really busy. It makes you sound like you're Superman. And the reality is for those of you, for those of us who kind of know the deep, dark secrets, I'm looking at you going, bro, you, you left your cape at home or it's a false cape. And I know you're not wearing any pants. You know, kind of the emperor's <laughs> wearing no clothes. Right, right, right. We think we look cool. We think we look strong when we're trying to hold all that weight. And little do people know we're dying inside and we're about to drop it all. And so delegation is so hard because we don't want to admit that we can't hold all the weight. And at the point you finally admit, I can't hold all this weight, you know what's going to happen? People are going to start respecting you more, not less. They're going to respect you more and they're finally going to go, thank you. Thank you for offering me an opportunity to help you out. That's actually what I'm really good at. I'm really good at fundraising. I'm really good at painting lines on the field. And so finally, it, not delegating is one of the most selfish things that we can do because we're withholding opportunity from other people and the skill set that God has naturally put inside of them. So how do we do it? We've got a tool called the Delegation Roadmap. Here's all it is. You can just make this at home. Get a sheet of paper and write out every single thing that you do in your role. I mean, if you take out the trash, write it out. If you answer vendor emails, <laughs> write it out. If you answer client emails, write it out. If you make the pies, write it out. I don't care. Everything. If you sweep the floors, write it out and then rank it. Tell us how much time seriously that you spend doing it. And then you need to multiply that time by $200 an hour. That's the minimum amount that an owner's time is worth per hour. It's uh, research to come back to say it's anywhere between 200 to a thousand dollars an hour is what an owner's time is worth in their business. And so multiply that time by $200 and that's how much it's costing your business for you to take out the trash, take the checks to the bank, sweep the floor, do the payables and all of those other tasks that you could potentially delegate to somebody else. That's a good way to do it. I thought when you said rank it, I, I was like, okay, like, yeah, I guess if you have like a hundred tasks, you'll do a ranking from a hundred, one to a hundred, <laughs> but this seems a, a much more tactical and practical way of doing it. Yeah. It gets real, real fast when you start putting dollar figures on it. We found a guy, uh, who owns about a $4 million company. He was reviewing every, uh, pay applications in the construction industry. He's reviewing every pay application that went through. It was costing about 70 hours a month. By the time we put the dollar figures on it, uh, it was, can't remember. It was in the five figure range of what it was costing his business per month to do that. And so True. we finally just said, bro, you gotta, you gotta cut this out. You could spend a couple hours a week training somebody on how to do this and cut that cost in a fraction and save yourself the headache. My goodness, what a miserable position to be constantly looking at paperwork all day long. Well, especially if you're doing all those other things, right? Which as a small business owner, you never have a lack of things to do. That's right. Exactly <laughs> right. Uh, before we move on to the next part of the show, I want to ask Scott an important question. So if you're cruising along on your commute right now, listening to us, if you're working out or if you're just relaxing at home, take a moment to pause and pay close attention Scott, if we're looking for help in our own small business, 
are there resources you have, uh, like an ebook, video tutorials, how-to guides that we can check well, out? Thanks, Tom, thanks for asking. I, I don't take this question lightly. You, you're working your rear end off to kind of set a stage through this podcast, and you're giving us access to that. And I just, I just want to tell you thank you up front. So thank you for that. And yeah. we've got something that what we've decided to do is instead of creating kind of an extra outside resource, um, we just take our coaching, kind of put it out there for people that they can get access to right away. So I'm going to give you two. The first one is the Business on Purpose podcast. Uh, our podcast is not very well produced. I do it from my phone, just in full candor. When I get into my truck after a client meeting, and so we'll have anywhere from 10 to 20 client meetings a week, I'll get in my truck after a client meeting. I'll literally turn on the podcast recorder on my phone, and I will walk you through the exact scenario that I just walked a small business owner through, whether they're dealing with how to build out bonus structures, they're dealing with how to deal with bad employees, they're dealing or walking through writing their vision story, their mission, all this stuff we've talked about. I literally walk you through in four to eight minute segments through the Business on Purpose podcast. So if you want ongoing coaching and you don't have to pay anything except your time, go to the Business on Purpose podcast. The other resource we've got, Tom, is we decided months ago that we were going to take the very first step in our Four Steps to Business Freedom coaching program in its fullness. It's not hacked. We don't give you half of it. It is the full video tutorial and the full template. If you want to write your vision story out, you have no excuse it's totally free in terms of cost, but it will cost you about two to three hours of your time. So if you're willing to invest two to three hours of your time in the longevity of your business, all people have to do is go to mybusinessonpurpose.com forward slash vision. That's it. Mybusinessonpurpose.com forward slash vision. The full tutorial, we don't send you like 18 different emails and then on the 18th email you get it. It comes right <laughs> up um, when you when you put your little email in there and it just, boom, it pops right up. You've got the video You'll have the tutorial, and as long as you've got two to three hours to invest in your own business, it's there for you uh, to walk straight through. Fantastic. Uh, I will be taking a look at that because uh, you can always improve and uh, and refine your vision and mission. Uh, and no doubt, uh, mine will get better from from uh, from your well, coaching. Well, fire away, Tom. In fact, once you're done with it, we offer this to everybody. Send it to us. You can. We've got our coaches in a private Facebook group. Let us know. We'll invite you into the Facebook group. And if you want to post your vision there, our coaches will actually review it with you. And so oh, we, awesome. uh, we really try to put our we, we try to put our money where our mouth is. Uh, in, in leading people into this vision. We're, we're deadly serious about it. Fantastic. I'll make sure that those are both in the show notes. Um, and uh, I highly encourage everybody to take advantage of that. Look, it's time for my favorite part of the show. This is where we talk about one of the best habits we can adopt today. And that is the habit of reading. Yes. Scott, I know you love to read because I heard you reference Cal Newport, uh, who's a local professor here at Georgetown and unbelievable when it comes to productivity, hacking and things like that. But Scott, I want you to think about the books you've really enjoyed over the years, uh, books that have impacted you deeply. What are the two or three books that stand out? All right. I'm going to give a little list here um, because I've got I've got some – let's go back to niches. I've got a couple of niches that I want to – so let me give you number one book all time. Um, I will warn people it is a theology book. It's thick. It's long. Um, <laughs> but it is game-changing. Um, it's by a guy named Dallas Willard. He's – uh, passed away just a few years ago. He was a professor of philosophy, uh, distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California for years and years and years. And he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And if you want to think, regardless of your faith background, 
go read that book. That's my number one book all time. It's not going to necessarily make you a better business owner, help you process, do anything like that. But it is my number one book all time. The book that gave me the broadest perspective in the history of my reading is a book by Thomas Friedman, who is a a Jewish columnist for the New York Times, and he's a brilliant writer. It's called The World is Flat. Yeah. The World is Flat. And that probably blew open my perspective more than any book. All right. So that's my not necessarily for business owners or anybody. That's just those those are great books all time. Now, a couple of non-negotiable books for small business owners. E-Myth by Michael Gerber, uh, Profit First by Mike Michalowicz, and 12-Week Year by Brian Moran. Those three, when somebody joins our Four Steps to Business Freedom group coaching program, we drop those books in an awesome box, and we drop them in the mail, and we ship them to their house immediately because those are foundational for all heroic small business owners. It's funny. The uh, the 12-Week Year has been coming up quite a few times now with uh, other guests, so... I've been meaning to get it, but this just kind of solidifies that. Yeah, We literally, with our team this morning, right before I got on this podcast, we literally just uh, created our rough 12-week plan for the next 12 weeks. We've been doing it for about two years, and every 13th week, uh, we start to develop the next 12-week plan, and in our team meetings, it's the only thing we discuss. That is our agenda when we go through our team meetings. Awesome. Look, last question. Uh, what are you working on now that you're excited about or what's coming up that you're excited about? Yeah, I just got back from social media marketing world at the time of this recording, uh, which is a massive conference out in San Diego. And there's been a big realization. I'm reading another book called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked is the subtitle. And uh, again, another research book, but it's really, really profound as to what social technology is doing with our craniums, with our brains, with the uh, wiring and the hardwiring of our minds. And it's a little unnerving, quite honestly. And coming back, there was a there was a collective push among the leaders of social media, of which I'm not one, but the guys that are there that are really leading this charge. And th- there wasn't even a defined theme that they necessarily got together and put their heads together and came up with. But what the walkaway theme was, was human connection. We have got to reclaim social technology for the purpose of human connection. And so the cool, one of the coolest things we're working on right now, Tom, is we've sent out a form to all of our heroic small business owner clients, and we're asking them questions like, what is your favorite candy bar? What's your favorite restaurant? What's your favorite collegiate <laughs> team? And our little small team, we're going to create a calendar over the next 12 weeks. And it's a calendar to create more intentional human connection based on who our clients are. And yeah, it's going to be a little systematized. It's going to be a little process, but you know what? I don't think they're going to care. I think they're going to appreciate the connection because it's going to be us one-on-one doing it. The calendar is just there to remind us, but it's going to be us one-on-one dropping a pack of short ribs in one of our clients' refrigerators so that when they get home that night, there'll be a note from us in their refrigerator saying, hey, we hope you enjoy these short ribs. We know they're your favorite. And doing something like that, that's what we're we're most excited about is trying to up our game with human connection with the heroic clients that we get to serve. That's awesome. Uh, I'll, I'll close with this final thought about that and what that makes me think of. So I did my master's in applied psychology. And one of the things we, th- we, we studied a lot was well-being, you know, this, the science of well-being. And kind of if you look through the, the literature, 
uh, and kind of try to sum up the literature. It says other people matter, mm. right? Mm. Other people matter. And so when you think about kind of your takeaway from the social media uh, conference there, um, that that's what I'm taking home from that is like, mm. look, how do we get back to um, valuing those relationships? How do we get back to connecting uh, in, a, in, a, in a deep way, not a superficial way? So, well, look, Scott, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I just want to say thank you. Thank you. I'm taking away lots of great nuggets to, to, to implement in my own life. And I know uh, the rest of our, our listeners are well, as well. Again, it, it's our pleasure. You've built a platform. You're sharing it with us. You're sharing uh, all of this work with the audience that listens to you. And I just, I want to applaud you, Tom, for what you're doing. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a, it's a lot of back end work <laughs> and, uh, and you're doing it for the value and the benefit of others. So thank you. For, thank you for doing that. And thanks for having us. You can connect with Scott online through his website, mybusinessonpurpose.com and his Twitter account at Scott Beebe. That's S-C-O-T-T-B-E-E-B-E. All the links and resources Scott and I discussed can be found at the page created just for this episode. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 25. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and enjoy learning from our guests each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. That's it for today. I'll see you next time.